Hello and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady. And for today's guest, we've got Mac McKenney. Mac McKenney is one of the most notable overlanding professionals in the world. So Mac has literally made a living. He's made a career out of traveling overland. So he has led some of the most significant overland expeditions uh, to date, many of them also for television. So Mac has worked with A-list actors like Adrian Brody, Tom Hardy, and others on several expeditions, including ones to the Pole of Cold in Russia. He also held the record for the fastest time from London to Cape Town overland. And he has done things around electric vehicles, but also just a master planner, a master navigator, prioritizer of equipment. So there is a lot that comes into this conversation. We also talk about his time with the Royal Air Force. We talk about his career shift from being in the military and some personal tragedies that happened along the way. So there's a lot to learn from Mac. And I did in the conversation with him. I really enjoyed spending time with him at his family farm in the south of England. So please enjoy my conversation with Mac McKenney. And a special thanks to Rocky Talkies for their support of this week's podcast. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team in Denver. The radios are extremely rugged, easy to use, and compact, weighing in at just under eight ounces. They have a range of one to five miles in the mountains and up to 25 miles line of sight. The batteries will last from three to five days and you can recharge them easily via USB-C right in the vehicle. Our team uses Rocky Talkies and we also used them recently at the Overland Expo. The next Overland Expo, stop into our booth and say hello and check out the radios for yourself. And as a listener of the Overland Journal podcast, you can get 10% off a pair by going to rockytalkie.com forward slash Overland Journal. Thanks again, Rocky Talkie. So, Mac, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you for hosting me at your beautiful home here. I mean, where, where are we at approximately in the UK? We are in East Devon. So you are about 150 miles southwest of London, down on the sort of the, the narrowing pointy bit of England in the bottom left hand corner of the UK. I had an, so. a, just a beautiful drive today. I was driving the Grenadier that we're going to take across Africa. And part of the goal with this trip was to get miles on it. Yeah. Take it out to Millbrook and get some miles on it and then take a longer drive like I did this morning just to make sure everything's functioning properly. And what a beautiful day to be in an adventure vehicle yeah. in the UK. So you, you've, you've brought the best weather with you, I tell you. It's not normally like this. It's uh, Yeah, it's normally wet and miserable, but today doesn't get much better. So <laughs> well, yeah, thank, thank you for yeah, bringing it with you. A little bit of Arizona with us for sure. <laughs> I'll drink to that. Yeah, and we're actually, we're having a beautiful cider right mm-hmm. here. This is a local cider, is it? Yep, just over the border in Somerset. Okay. So that's made, you know, no more than 10 mile away. So oh, incredible. Well, one of the things that, that I don't know about you and I'd love to, to learn more is where you grew up, what your, what your experience was as a young person that drove you into this passion for the outdoors. I'm a London lad by birth. Um, only spent six months of my life there. Luckily, I'm, I'm more of a country lad at heart. 
Uh, my dad was a, a traffic cop in the Metropolitan Police, so he used to go out on the motorbikes escorting uh, Margaret Thatcher and the Queen and all the rest of it through London. Both my parents were brought up down here. They were evacuated down here during the war as young children, so I've always had family here. And then my dad, when he got promoted a sergeant, had fortunate enough managed to buy a second house, so that meant that we spent even more time down here. So this has always been kind of my, my real home in terms of uh, where I feel most comfortable. So as a young lad from the age of about seven, eight, up until I, when I joined the military, we would be exploring all of the fields around here. So always out, you know, building camps and playing soldiers. And sure. that was kind of um, where I felt most comfortable, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. My dad hadn't troubled much. He'd been posted to Bermuda. I think he was there for about two years. But I guess sort of genetically, the sort of the adventurous DNA travel bug within me has come from my mum's side. So mm. she was a stewardess on the original Queen Mary, which I think is more, is it? It is in mm. Southern California. Yeah, somewhere around that way. Is it that's a floating a, hotel or it, something it now? It is, yeah. So, oh, she, fascinating. so she did a couple of laps of the world with that one and then yeah. some other Cunard ships. Yeah, once you start hearing stories of New Zealand, Australia, the Panama Canal yeah. and all the rest of it, you know. But I think one of the, the key factors, one of the sort of the real defining moments of my life, I was in middle school, so what would that have been, 10? And a friend of one of the teachers was a Canadian. Mm. And this Canadian was on holiday to see their friend, and, and obviously the request was, can you come and give a talk to the school kids about where you live in Canada? And they must have lived somewhere slap bang in the middle because there was, you know, 150 little kids sitting on the floor. And this person said, most of the people in my village have never seen the sea. Of course you've seen the sea. It's, you know, in the UK, you're, I think you're never more than 70 miles away from the sea, even the most remote part in the middle, which is, you know, a couple of hours drive. But of course, in the middle of Canada, you're talking thousands of miles in every direction to That's go to right. the sea. And so I just sat there and was baffled by that. And clearly, it then dawned on me that the rest of the world isn't like where I was brought up in Surrey. There are different places, different people. And I think that just stuck with me. And I thought, crikey, I want to go and see these places where you are so far from the coast or you're so high up a mountain or so deep into a desert or jungle. Yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of where it all started, that sort of fascination with the rest of the world. And is that part of what was the motivation to join the military? Um, I'd always wanted to be a pilot. Uh, my, my father, he too had wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force, but he never made the grade. So he didn't get the qualifications at school. So he just did his national service. He was uh, a signals officer. So he, a bit like you now with your headphones on and all the kit, he was there <laughs> listening to the Russians and the Morse code. Um, but I, I wanted to be a pilot. So I, from the age of six, so I joined the Air Cadets. And that was my one and only aim in life. Mm. Um, I didn't think about adventure or climbing mountains or driving vehicles. It was, it was, I was going to be a fighter pilot. And that was my one and only focus in life. Uh, and that was throughout my entire schooling. So apart from messing around here and messing around playing soldiers in the air cadets, um, it was flying, flying, flying. And that's all I ever wanted to do. How did that uh, experience go for you in the military? <laughs> Half of, of my life didn't go quite as I had hoped. So I was awarded a flying scholarship when I was 16. So basically, you do the, the medical and the aptitude tests. You don't have to do the leadership test because they don't really expect too much out of you as a 15, 16-year-old. But you do all the other tests. And if you are of pilot material and you have to sit one interview, they will basically pay almost to get your private pilot's license. And I was awarded one of them. They only give out like 10 a year or so. Wow. So I, out of 10,000, 50,000 cadets or whatever it was, there's a lot of cadets. 
I, I was one of the very lucky few to get, get awarded this flying scholarship. I then get a letter. No, it wasn't even a letter. It was a phone call one morning, not long after having done this aptitude and medical test, saying, you need to get into hospital right now. Straighten it, drop, drop everything, get straight into London immediately. Uh, you've got suspected heart disease mm. as a 16-year-old. So in I go into London, a week of all sorts of tubes and tests and treadmills and oxygen and things being poked up inside me and operations. They couldn't find any heart disease, uh, but they found an irregularity, and that's what had been picked up on this ECG trace, this heart test. But the, the underlying result was you will never fly in any capacity, mil military or civilian, and you will never join the Royal Air Force in any capacity. That was it my world just folded because there was never a plan B. So for 10 years, all I'd ever focused on, and before I'd even really got to the proper start line, but also having been awarded a flying scholarship, you know, we're going to give it to you on one hand and then we're going to immediately take it away from you. So from elation to utter despair within probably 24 hours, it was, wow. you know, it was, it was very, very difficult. I don't really remember too much of it, but my mum said I just kind of locked myself away for a week. My dad's never going to hear this, so I don't, I don't mind saying it. But unfortunately, I think there was quite a lot of jealousy from him because he wanted to be a pilot and didn't make the grade. So throughout my entire childhood, his attitude was, well, if I didn't make it, you don't stand a chance. So forget it. You're not good enough. You're not good as me. So I think there was a certain amount of sort of glee from him mm. that, haha, told you so. Because I guess he didn't want to see me do the life that he wanted to lead. That's I, I, I didn't get the support from my parents. My mum, I, I think she was just trying to be a bit more realistic and level-headed. You know, how many people who apply for fighter pilot make it? The percentage is tiny. So the odds are you're not going to make it. So better have a bit more of a realistic head on you. You know, she sent me off to some supermarket to do a sort of a managerial course. And I, I thought, you know, really stacking beans on shelves? You, you, <laughs> you, you don't even know who I am as a child. Sure. That's never going to fulfill full my needs. But it was, a, it was a school teacher. It was my old geography teacher that was the one that basically kept me on the straight and narrow. I owe him so lot. I'm still in touch with him. Oh, that's wonderful. And um, you got those mentors. In. Yeah, yeah. Because he, he, he said, look, because I literally thought I was going to pack a rucksack and run. And he said, no. He said, You've, you've got to get your O-levels, uh, which is the, the first proper grade that we have to do here in the UK. Your dad's not going to retire for two years, so stay at school and do A-levels. Don't, don't run, you know, just focus on your education. And, and so, yeah, so I basically chose subjects with him as the teacher because he was such a good bloke. And, and he kind of kept me on the straight and narrow, and, and thank God he did because, as I will explain later things changed uh, and without those qualifications i would have been screwed i would have yeah. thrown away the you know an opportunity so I, I owe him a lot we need those people in our life absolutely that, that remind us that there's something to fight for yeah yeah hopefully to keep us on that street yeah very much so i certainly am grateful for the for the air force for me i was i was just a firefighter in the military but yeah i, did, I felt like i was a ship without a rudder yeah and it really made a difference for yeah. me for me, for yeah. sure. So what happens next? Do you uh, well, go we, to school for a while? Yeah, so I did, I did my O-levels and got enough grades to get a good job. I just didn't know what the heck I was going to do in my life. Uh, so my dad retired from the police, as you did in those days, at the age of 46 with a full pension. Moved from the London area down to the West Country where we are now. And I thought, okay, if I can't fly, I'll fix aircraft, you know. In fact, tell a lie, I thought, if I can't fly, I'll travel. Uh, so I actually applied to Shell to be a deck officer on tankers. Um, I didn't know the front end of a boat to the back end of a boat. I didn't have a clue. Not a clue. But I thought if I can't fly, because I'd heard about my mum traveling the world, I thought I'll just travel, get away, I'll escape from where I am. Anyway, I failed the eyesight test. 
episode tornado fighter, 600 mile an hour, 100 feet off the ground, perfect eyesight. Sitting on a, on a big boat doing two miles an hour, my eyesight wasn't good enough. Anyway, so that one went out the window. So then I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll apply to the army because they've got helicopters. Mm. I can't fly them because the Air Force has got final say. So I'll, um, I'll become a helicopter technician. Kept failing the medical. I thought, well, they're not, they're not going to know about what I did in the Air Force, but they, they did because the records kind of followed me. So I kept failing army medicals and I got really frustrated. So I said to the careers officer, I said, look, had I come to you never having had an heart, a heart test like I was going air crew, you wouldn't test my heart anyway. There could be a hundred other guys like me with the same irregularity. It's not causing me any problems. I've done aerobatics. I can run a marathon. You know, Clearly, it's not physically affecting me, but you've now labelled me as having a heart problem. And he said, oh, there's nothing I can do. You know. Anyway, you obviously thought about it. And about a week later, having, having had failed three army medicals, I get a phone call, say, Mac, what are you doing? I said, oh, nothing much. He said, get up to Taunton. It's about 20 miles north of where we are. So I drove up there. He gave me a brown envelope and a return ticket to Plymouth. And there's a naval base at Plymouth. So off I go on the train, knock on a door, found this bloke with the guy's name on it, handed the brown envelope over to him. He opened it, took a piece of paper out, signed it, handed it back. Congratulations, you're fit to join the army. <laughs> he was a naval doctor and falsified my medical papers oh, to wow. get me in. Oh, wow. And to this day, I've not been able to track down the careers officer or the naval doctor <laughs> because, my God, do I owe them a pint or two. And that's how I got in. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So I joined the army. Uh, and as a helicopter tech, different trades, you have to sign on for di- different lengths of service. So if you're a basic infantry soldier... You could probably just do three years. If you're a technician, they're going to spend two years training you. So they don't want you to leave after another year. So you have to sign on for a minimum of six. So with the helicopters, as with probably most aircraft, if you do anything to it, you've got to take it for a test flight. You know, change a rotor blade, change an engine, change a spark plug, whatever it is, you take it for a test flight. And I would go, yeah, I'll do it. I'll volunteer for that test flight. And I was forever up there with my little diagnostics kit next to the pilot, checking that the aircraft wasn't going to fall out the sky. And they said, you're a bit keen, aren't you? You know, you techies like to keep your feet on the ground. I said, oh, God, no, I'd sooner be flying. They said, well, why didn't you apply for aircrew? Clearly, you're clever enough. If you can fix them, you can fly them. Gave them the whole medical story of all failing all these medicals and this heart problem. And they said, oh, no, um, we'll help you out. So two of our pilots in our very small unit, we were part of a rapid deployment unit. Um, We weren't special forces, but we were kind of rapid forces. So we were always on standby to go to the extreme north of Norway, where Russia and Norway have a 150-mile-long border, or the very extreme of Turkey, where they border Georgia. So what was, you know, part of the Soviet Union. So we would be part of this multinational NATO force. So we were working alongside the Americans with their Hueys, the RAF with their Puma helicopters. So all of these uh, NATO helicopter units were very much mixed in. So if any, the Russians did attack, you couldn't single out who you wanted to hit. You would get casualties from all sides. Basically, we were like cannon fodder. Uh, But basically, um, it was a brilliant unit, Arctic warfare training, desert training, and all the rest of it. Two of our pilots were were doctors. We only had 12 pilots, and two of them were doctors. And they said, um, right, we'll send you back to the regimental doctor. Got sent back, did a test, nothing wrong with your heart. Got sent 
all the way through the system, back to the same RAF doctor who had failed me as a cadet, did the same test and went, nothing wrong with your heart, you're fit to join the Air Force. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, seriously? I'd been in about, oh, how long had I been in? 18 months at that point. Yeah. I'd just done my basic training. Of course, I'd signed on for six years. The six-year point would have meant I was 25 before I could leave. You have to be in pilot training the Air Force at 20, by the time you're 24, otherwise you're too old. So it was a two-and-a-half-year battle to get out the army. Basically, I almost had to go on strike Yeah, sure. to get out. Anyway, I, I got pushed higher and higher and higher up the chain, ended up in front of this brigadier. And he said, if you if you promise me you'll go down the careers office, the RAF careers office, the day I let you out, I will let you out. And he did. And I was true to my word. And I went and signed up to the Air Force and started uh, officer training about a year later. Oh, wow. So, so you did get to fly after all. Yeah. I started um, fast jet training. What a story. So I it, didn't know it, that. It was, a long, it was a long battle. It wasn't like, oh, I saw a Top Gun, I'm going to be a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a long-winded battle to get there, which you know, unfortunately then makes the later part of the story more heartbreaking yeah, because it was, it was such a battle to get to that yeah. point. Yeah. So you, you make it into the Air Force. Yeah. What happens next? I excelled as an officer and was made the senior cadet of all 150 that went through training. Uh, I then did my first pilot training course on the little chipmunk, which is a uh, piston-engined aircraft, fully aerobatic, 6G, wonderful little aircraft to fly. In fact, I've just got my daughter a flight in one only about a week ago. There's oh, one wow. up at the local airfield here, and wow. I, know, I know the pilot, so I got her a flight <laughs> in an aircraft that I'd actually flown oh, when wow. I was in the military. Wow. Then I went on to the second aircraft. It's called a Takano, so it's turboprop. I was holding my own, and I'd been earmarked for Jaguars, which is single seat, so I was good enough to not need a uh, navigator. And then I came home one weekend, and it's about 250 mile away, good five-hour drive. It's a long old haul. UK roads aren't brilliant, takes a long time. And I came home one weekend, and a good friend of mine, her mum worked in the bank, and I just happened to go into the bank uh, to get some money, and the mum drags me to one side and says, I've got to talk to you, I've got to talk to you. My daughter, I won't say who it is, but my, my daughter has just been raped. And we're really worried about her. Um, she's a nurse. Uh, we're really concerned she's going to do something stupid. Can you come and see her? So I did, and I went to see this girl. And then I don't know how it really happened, but I ended up finding myself every weekend driving from Lincolnshire to Devon to basically sit with this girl to stop her killing herself. And the mum was kind of feed. Ugh, I don't know. Now that I'm a parent, you'd, you'd kind of, you would say anything to anybody if, to, to keep your child alive. You know, you don't care what you do. And I'm sure I would do the same. But I think the mum was feeding me a bit of a line saying things like the doctors and the psychiatrists are telling us you're the only one keeping her alive. If it wasn't for you, she would have killed herself by now. So you get a lot of pressure put on you. Every weekend I was driving back and forth and back and forth. Now, when you're trying to be a fast jet pilot, the last thing you need at the weekends is to be doing a 10-hour round trip, probably more, stuck in traffic, sitting with someone day and night to try and make sure they don't kill themselves and all the mental pressure associated with it. You're supposed to de-stress. You know, you've had a hard week of fast jet training. You've just got to decompress and chill out and, you know, take time for the next week. Sleep, yeah. Yeah, and and I wasn't doing that. And this is before Red Bull had been invented. And I remember, you know, downing two litres of full-fat Coke just to keep me awake to make the journey home. I I got back late one Sunday night, uh, looked on the roster first thing Monday morning, 8 o'clock, Mac, solo flight, one hour, off you go. And these are multi-million pound aircraft, you know, and they're high performance. And a lot of the time you're flying very low or very high, you know, full ejector seat and all the rest of it. And so I off I, t- off I went and I, was, I wasn't high, 13, 15,000 feet and I was doing aerobatics. 
And you're pulling 6G. Now, we didn't have G-suits in these aircraft. It's only when you move on to the Hawk that you get a G-suit. And so you've so you got... just bear down. Yeah, so you've got to do what's called the anti-G straining manoeuvre, mm-hmm. which, uh, without sounding too crude, is like having the world's worst constipation. <laughs> and you've got to stress every muscle in your body to keep the blood pressure in your head as high as you can by tensing. And I'm doing it. I just didn't have the strength to do it. And I just thought, I'm absolutely knackered. And something just snapped. And I had this horrible, I want to get out of this plane right here, right now. Now, if I'd been in a car, I would have thrown it over to the side of the verge. I would have swung the door open and I'd have been collapsed on the floor, hyperventilating. I had a massive panic attack. But I'm up there on my own on a clear blue, the day like this, and it's hot. You've got the canopy on you. You've, You've got a full flying suit, which is kind of fire resistant. And you've got the gloves and you've got the oxygen mask and you've got the visor down. So you've got a little bit of air just around where your neck is. And you can pull your flying suit up or roll your glove down and you get a little bit of air. And there's tiny vents, but it's a really claustrophobic environment. It's like being in a greenhouse. And that just exasperated the situation. And you're up there on your own. Now, I was now 25 and I'd wanted to be a pilot since I was six. And I had that whole battle of the flying scholarship, the army, getting out the army, getting in the Air Force. So the last thing I was going to do was put out any form of emergency call over the radio to say, I need to land now, because they'd have kicked me out, or at least I assumed they would kick me out. So I kept quiet. So for 50 minutes, I had to try and keep this thing in the air. And I was talking to myself, saying, calm down, just breathe, relax, calm down, calm down. But of course, it's got a black box in it, so they could hear, or they would have, if there'd been anything happened to the aircraft, they would have been able to hear what I was saying to myself. And they could tell that there's, there's nothing wrong with the aircraft. There were no system failures. The wings hadn't fallen off. Yeah. The weather wasn't bad. I was getting to the point thinking, I'm going to literally pass out with fear. I was getting to such a state. So there were, there were two reactions, that were two thoughts in my head. This thing, if I pass out, my last conscious moment before I black out through fear is to reach down and pull the ejector seat and punch out. But I thought, well, I can't do that because this plane is going to hit a school or it's going to hit a hospital. Yeah. It's going to land. And I'm going to come down on a chute. Perfectly okay, but I'm going to kill people. You know, the odds of it landing in a field are probably quite good. But at the time, I was thinking, this is going to hit and kill people. And I can't do that. And I couldn't face the consequences. It would be all over the news. It would be yeah. court-martial. It would be, you know, I wouldn't be able to live with the consequences of, of having done that. So I thought, if I black out, I've got to go down with it. But I was only 25. I didn't yeah. want to die at so I, there, there was no way out. Yeah. And so that just built me into more and more of a panic. Anyway, somehow, I don't know to this day how I managed to keep that aircraft in the air and keep control of it because uh, I was just a complete mess. You remember the scene at the right at the beginning of Top Gun, the, the original, when his mate's coming into land and he's sweating and he's looking at the picture of his wife and his yeah. kid and Tom Cruise flies alongside and he's just all over the shop. Well, I was kind of like that without any help and couldn't talk to anybody. It was bloody awful. Anyway, I came into land. First time I didn't put my undercarriage down. Of course, flares went up and I got a big rollicking over the radio and I managed to land it the second time. I never told a soul. I did go flying solo a few more times, but that was all low level where things were happening. Um, But eventually there was a day when the uh, weather was bad, low cloud from about 2,000 to 15,000 feet. And the instructor said, right, go up through the cloud, do some aerobatics and come back down again. I'd had a panic on a clear blue sky. Yeah, sure. And I just looked at him and I said, I can't, I can't do it. I had to put my hand up. 
Yeah. And then yeah. my world fell apart. Yeah. The Air Force were brilliant though, because at that point, I'd, because I'd excelled as an officer and I'd done so well as a pilot, they um, sent me off to see a doctor. I ended up in a, in a hospital and to this day, I don't know if I was there for three weeks or three months. Sure. But the problem is I felt like I had a problem then because I was in like a psychiatric ward. Yeah, sure. And that made me feel worse. Yeah, Because sure. I just thought, now I do have a problem. Yeah. But then they sent me flying at uh, Farnborough, which is on the west side of London with an American colonel. Okay. He was a doctor. He was an F-16 instructor. Okay. Colonel McCarthy. I would love to meet him again. What a cool dude he was. Right on. And we flew a Hunter, which is an old 1960s, 70s fighter, but it was a two-seat training version. Okay. And they would, it would put me through everything that I could possibly ever experience as a, as a fully qualified pilot. High level, low level, super hot, super cold. They were in the centrifuge, the one that Roger Moore had to destroy with his watch. Sure. They still had that. It's a 1950s centrifuge. 9G sitting there. They were using me to test the Typhoon anti-G suit. <laughs> so the, the normal G suit kind of presses your abdomen, squeezes your legs a bit. This is full inflatable socks, full inflatable legs right up to here. And then someone decided the best way to compress a muscle is not just from the outside, but from the inside and the outside. So as you're pulling G, high pressure air is being forced into your lungs. Oh, wow. So your rib cage is being compressed from both sides. So that squeezes everything. So I could sit in the centrifuge at 9G. The only problem is, though, with your hands below your heart, all the blood pools down and all the um, capillaries start bursting. Looks like you come out with measles. Oh, wow. So you have to sit there with your... That's why an F-16 has, has got the controls propped up for that very reason. Wow. Because your hands down low. You have to stay up above the level uh, of, of your heart. heart. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. So they, I, I got through all that and then got sent back to my unit. And I was, I think, a course behind where all my mates were and I was given 20 hours to catch up with the course that I joined. I started off really well but the closer I got to flying solo the more on edge I got yeah. and basically I, I'd, I'd lost it. I'd, I'd lost that edge and so that was it. That was the end of my Air Force career. Built by off-roaders for off-roaders. Onyx Off-Roads Route Builder provides a new solution to your adventure planning with a snap to functionality. Just draw a line with your cursor and the route will automatically snap to the road or trail. Hit save and the route will sync to your mobile device. Now you're ready to hit the trails. Go farther with Onyx Off-Roads Route Builder. But um, isn't it interesting, something at the time that can feel so disruptive or not the course that you want for your life, it sets you up to do something that you were yeah. meant, you were meant to do well it, it's 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 driven me but to start with i there was never a plan b so i thought okay i need a i need to escape this was 1993 so people particularly blokes british blokes big tall ex-army six foot two british blokes you don't talk about your feelings and you know mental health problems and all that kind of stuff so you kind of keep it quiet it's yeah. just embarrassing really you know you let yourself down and you let your team down you let the military down I, I they offered me ground jobs but I didn't I didn't feel I was worth or worthy of holding the Queen's Commission mm. you know I thought I don't deserve it I'm not good enough so I although I probably was but I quit so I, I needed to take time out to go and 
rethink what the heck I was going to do in my life because there was never a plan B. And so I um, got a job with a company called Dragoman Overland. Uh, they run a fleet of Mercedes trucks and anything up to, say, 25, 27 sort of backpacking tourists. Sure. And you drive, uh, and they do it all over Africa, South America, and Central and, and Southern Asia. And I got um, a job with them driving a truck. Perfect. But I got the East, East and Southern Africa bit. And it was good. It was good. It was it was brilliant. You know, uh, the gorillas of Zaire, uh, Victoria Falls, Serengeti, Masai Mara, Okavango Delta. You know, I spent about a year out there. It was yeah. amazing. But it wasn't it wasn't tough enough for me. I think the people that were attracted to the East and Southern Africa route, it was a bit more sort of like a mobile game fair. You know, it wasn't grizzled hardcore adventure. Sure. So it was a bit too tame, but gave me an inkling about what would fire me up what what would replace the flying yeah sure yeah so so from that point uh when did you do your first big trip well one of the guys uh so a girlfriend at the time she had a mate who lived in joburg so we went there and an ex-boyfriend of hers all a bit convoluted but basically he had won camel trophy but he won the camel trophy south africa and it was pre uh the abolition of apartheid so they weren't allowed to compete internationally Uh, a guy called steve gray really good guy but so that's the first time I heard about Camel Trophy. So I came back to the UK thinking this Land Rover stuff, Camel Trophy stuff, that is that's proper hardcore. I love yeah. that. Adventure, Africa, big long distances, traveling to remote places. I love that as well. So I applied for Camel Trophy. What year did you apply? Uh, ni- uh, it would have been for the 96 event. And I think there were, I don't know, someone told me like 10,000 applicants or something. Anyway, I got down to the last four and went to the international selections in Spain. The, the Land Rover guys, like the Bob Ives and the Joe Ives and uh, sorry, the Camel Trophy guys and the Land Rover guys, they, they, well, I was being, people were coming up to me at the very end saying, congratulations, Mac, who are you taking with you? And I said, well, I, I don't know if I'm, you know, there's four of us here in the, it's trying to compete for Team, team GB. I said, I don't know if I'm going. Uh, I said, oh, you've got it, mate. We've watched you for the last four days or five days. You've got it. You've breezed it. You know, absolutely no problem at all. Um, my understanding is the PR girls didn't like, didn't like me and I didn't get it. I was mortified because I really thought I'd put in everything. So I never, I never got to go to Kalimantan, which is a real shame. Yeah, and that was one of the last years. That, that was, was the proper that, one. That it was a uh, Yeah. Yeah, because I, I applied the next year in 97. That was Mongolia, was, wasn't I it? I was still inactive reserve military so yeah i couldn't do it what an incredible event i mean it's shaped for so many of us that do this thing the camel trophy either inspired us initially or inspired us in some way oh it's it's the ultimate and i think i think it always will be and there's and there's there's elements of it that i still try and introduce into all the projects i do you know there has to be a strong team identity you know you look at the uh, the rainforest challenge yeah probably tougher than camel trophy very highly tricked up vehicles you know horrendous conditions they're trying to drive through every vehicle's different and everybody looks different you take camel trophy every vehicle's you know got the same markings the same color scheme everyone wears the same uniform it's very military in its way but because of that there's a sense of belonging no question and without even someone telling you you need to be part of a team by putting all putting on the same shirt you automatically know you're part of the team and therefore you will automatically look out for each other. And we always make sure that we do that. Doesn't matter where we go, everybody will have that strong team identity because it just, it's, you know, um, groups do it. You know, re- religions, you have a certain look. Sure. If, if you're a... Uh, Landover might be a religion. 
Well, it, 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 well if, if you're a true land, and they did this in a, in a Land Rover magazine, and they did this once, you know, how true a Land Rover fan are you? And you had to answer all these questions. You know, do you wear a bush hat? Yes or no. Do you have a beard? Do you have a love of real ale? Uh, do you carry a utility knife with you? And the more of these things you had, the more real. And, and so, yeah, so that, I think people need to know they belong to something. I think yeah. that's just within human nature. Well, I would um, agree, and I think it also is why the Camel Trophy has stood the test of time. Yeah. If you look at, if you were to look at a, uh, a rainforest challenge of 15 years ago, it looks dated. Yeah. Because the accessories that are used and the the clothes that the people are wearing or the colors that they use or the livery yeah. or whatever. Uh, whereas a Camel Trophy event, they from the very beginning until the very last one, or almost the very last one. They looked so similar. Yeah. They looked, I mean, you could mix the years. Yeah. And it was just a different backdrop. Yeah. yeah. No, very, very inspiring event. So let's let's pivot a little bit into your expedition trips because some of these are just absolutely fascinating. But I'd like to start with your London to Cape Town, mm. which was one of the first things that, I mean, we met for the first time at the RGS Explore event in London, which is, I'd highly recommend it. It's, it's intended to support young people coming into exploration, mm-hmm. into you know either their own expedition, scientific work, humanitarian work. And you were the panel leader for the vehicle-based expedition. Yeah, so the, the RGS Explore Weekend is brilliant. So it's basically, it's those that want to do it can be, adv- can be advised and mentored by those that have done it. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what it is. You want to climb Everest, you want to sail an ocean, you want to do some you know, scientific work, you want to trek across a desert or through a jungle. Somebody will have done it, very similar to what you want to do. It's, uh, I, I worked with those guys for like 20 years yeah, uh, on the vehicle I remember, side. Yeah, uh, Benji Edmondson was there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Benji Davenport. Davenport, yeah. Excuse me, Davenport was there. He was getting ready to go around the world in his Defender 110, and he did. He absolute uh, legend, is, that guy. Yeah, absolute yeah. legend. Yeah. Uh, so, and I was so impressed by uh, the care and the insight that you had with those young people, and it was so great to meet you. Uh, and it was shortly after that, I believe, is when you did the London to Cape Town trip. Yeah, tw- well, 2010, we did London to Cape Town. I'd done quite a few projects up until that mm-hmm. point, but but automotive was definitely my thing. And I'd read about it in the Guinness Book of Records years ago. You know, someone had done London to Cape Town, and then you start reading about the history of all these other amazing, huge transcontinental driving records. And I just thought to look to that and thought, I'm going to beat that one day. Yeah. And it was always in the back of my mind. I met Lisa in uh, 2000 and when was it? Five. And then in 2006, I went off to Choyoyu, the world's sixth highest mountain to practice for Everest in 2007 as part of the world's largest ever medical research expedition on Everest. Huge. 60 intensive care doctors, 208 volunteers trekking to base camp. We had a Russian helicopter. We had 300 yaks, 300 porters, 40 tons of kit. 150,000 items of equipment, and we had to build medical laboratories at Kathmandu, Nampshi, Ferrishi, Base Camp, Camp 2, Camp 4, and then almost on the summit. So I, I never went above Base Camp, but some of my, my logistics team did. So I was in charge of all the logistics, communications, Base Camp manager, expedition manager. I had quite a lot of roles. And Lisa, my good lady, she was one of the uh, daft volunteers to trek to Base Camp to be tested on medical-grade exercise bikes. Mm till they were flat with exhaustion to see how their body was coping with a lack of oxygen. So we came back from there, back to the UK, and having been, uh, she was still working where she does now, was 
she was the boss of the World's Strongest Man competition, okay. which, you, which you may have heard of. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so she had the proper job, and I didn't, because we finished the expedition. And then, so little Sophie came along. She was referred to as what's the first of the Everest babies. A whole series of kids were born. <laughs> sort of once everyone got back home safely, nine months plus later, all these little kids arrived. And she, she was the first of the Everest babies. Um, I'd been banging on about this London to Cape Town record. And Lisa said, oh, for God's sake, just shut up and go and do it. So there I am, daddy daycare, having very cleverly trained my daughter to sleep by day and be awake by night when mum was home, so I could be scheming away and planning how to beat this record. It took me two years to plan it, because yeah. we were trying to get through Saudi Arabia. And then finally in 2010, under the patronage of uh, Sir Ranulph Fiennes, who I'd done a North Pole expedition with, and was in Alaska with him, with this Bering Strait crossing, and uh, Sir Sterling Moss, a very famous uh, Formula One racer, we set off to try and beat a record that had stood for 47 years. And no one had been able to beat it, mainly because there's always a bit of a punch-up somewhere in Africa and you can't get through. And basically, if you want to cross from the northern part to the southern part, I'm not quite sure what it is now with South Sudan, but it used to be if Sudan or Zaire, which is now uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, if, if either of those were no-go areas, you couldn't cross because each one of them met in the middle and both had a coastal border. Sure. So there are only two countries that basically controlled you moving from north to southern Africa. It was, it was okay. Sudan was okay. Uh, this was just before the Syrian conflict, so we went through Syria. We eventually got permission to drive through Saudi Arabia when we did our reconnaissance trip, because when you leave, the clock stop starts at the beginning. So we left at the uh, Royal Automobile Club in London and finished at the, uh, the Automobile Association building in Cape Town. There was only one ferry to take, and that was from, well, apart from, um, we went on the Channel Tunnel between the UK and France, but the ferry went from Saudi Arabia to Sudan, and we were told we had to be there nine o'clock on a Wednesday morning. So the only way to work out when to leave was to go and do a full reconnaissance, sure. drive all the way, log everything. How long does each border take? How long does it take to drive? Because yes, you know, even if you had a, Garmin system that could tell you it's 83 hours, but that doesn't really take into account the border crossing times no, and the sure. complexity. It's not like a lot of places where you just rock up, there's a booth, passport, next booth, vehicle documents go. You park up, as you know, in the middle of a square somewhere and there's just huts everywhere. Yep. And you've got to wander from one to another and say, oh no, you can't come here until you've paid your $20 environmental tax. Give us that bit of paper, then you can come back and see us. So it takes a long time. I think it was we left uh, New Year's, not New Year's Day. Yeah, it was like the 1st of January we left uh, 2010 to do a recce. Got all the way there, fairly high speed, got to the Saudi border, showed our passports, we were let in, and the customs officer was just standing there going, nah, sorry, mate, not coming in. I went, what? Steering wheel's on the wrong side. I went, oh, yeah. Nobody knew, and we were sponsored by Land Rover Saudi Arabia. They didn't know either. <laughs> so I had to come home. We finished the recce off in a hire car, so I came home and had to buy the vehicle that we did the recce in in the end. I think it was October 2010, 21 countries, 10,000 miles, 11 and a half days. Unbelievable. And is, does the record still stand? No, I think we basically put it back on the map. Mm. And there was a guy called Philip Young. Uh, have you heard of, the, well, I'm sure you have done, uh, the Peking to Paris rally, the classic car rally? Yeah? yeah. So he'd set that up, very wealthy, very influential. And he ran a classic car rally from London to Cape Town. But I think he was doing it as a reconnaissance for his own attempt. <laughs> Got to Cape Town, worked it all out, 
He had a little Fiat Panda, the twin air one, only two of them, and they hooned it back to uh, the UK. So they took it from 11 and a half days to 11 days. But clients on that same London to Cape Town classic car rally obviously as well had an inkling that they were going to do it. So rather than going south to north, when you arrive in Tunisia waiting for the ferry to Sicily, and you could be there 19, 20 hours, because you don't really know when you leave at the start when you're going to arrive. If you leave from London, you can pretty accurately work out when you're going to arrive for that ferry and you can time your departure within an hour or two, not waiting a day. So they got it from, so it went from an hour's time from 11 and a half days. Philip got it down to 11 and then I can't remember the name of the guy, but I have met him. It's now down to 11 days. Uh, No, sorry, 10 and a half days. 10 and a half days, yeah. That's unbelievable. But now, of course, you can't go through Libya. You really wouldn't want to. You can't really go through Syria and even Sudan. Who knows what's going on at the moment? So basically the route, the quick route, which is the the right-hand side of Africa is, yeah. I'll try and get it back one day. (laughs) Yeah, but we need need to calm down a bit. You know, you had it for a while. We did have, yeah, two and a half, two, two and a half years, I think we held yeah, on to maybe, it for. Maybe yeah. that was long enough. But we did get to, to meet the, 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 the previous record holder. Now, it's a pity he's no longer with us, but oh my God, did he have some stories to tell. They did it as a global launch of the Ford Cortina <laughs> in 1963. They set off going the route that everybody had gone before, down to southern Spain, cross to Morocco, and then go into Algeria, right through the middle of the Sahara, Algeria, Niger, sort of Benin, Nigeria and then probably cut across towards Lake Victoria and then down the right-hand side of Africa. So there he is, him, uh, Eric Jackson and Ken Chambers in this Ford Cortina. I think it was maybe a 1600 or two-litre engine. Get to the outskirts of Madrid and all of a sudden there's a whole delegation from the Ford Motor Company there, from the Ford Madrid, standing in the middle of the motorway going, stop, 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 don't go any further. What do you mean? A civil war has broken out and they've shut the border between Morocco and Algeria. You can't now cross. Oh my God, you know, this is, you can't just give up. This is the global launch. You know, Ford have pumped in a huge amount of money into this. So they thought, they very quickly went, okay, well, uh, right, we'll have to go down the right-hand side of Africa. So they went, turned round, went right the way over the top of sort of southern France into Italy, all the way down through Italy to Sicily to Tunisia. And to then turn left and go through Libya, Egypt, and down that way. Yeah. So most, you know, half of their route through Africa, they had no maps for. They had no idea. They hadn't looked at it at all. But on the ferry, there was a postcard. And that postcard had a map of Africa with the main cities on it. And they bought it. And that's how they navigated from Tunisia, from Tunis, basically to Nairobi. With this postcard. Oh, yeah, I'll do. <laughs> Addis Ababa, that's the next one. <laughs> and we got, Fantastic. To, we got to spend the day with him. What a character. What was their record? Theirs was 13 days, 8 hours, and they beat the previous record that had been held in 1952. They beat it by 18 minutes. That is the ultimate Top Gear challenge. Wow. 18 minutes. So, yeah, I've still got loads of accounts, and I, I collect anything. I, if only the day I'd found it on eBay, another uh, paper, a newspaper cutting from... A guy, there's a guy called George Hinchliffe that had held the record before. He did it twice in one year. He did it in January in Hillman Minx. And then they launched this thing called the Humber Super Snipe, part of the same group of family of cars. And uh, the boss of the Roots Group said, um, can you beat your own record? Do it, you know, mental. I love it. Absolutely. Proper adventurers, those guys. Well, and the the logistics around that. So talking about, because border crossings are obviously one of the biggest considerations Mm. around a record like that. What were some of the things that you learned about border crossings that helped you be more efficient or effective? Well, the first one is utmost patience. You know, when you think the guys that are sent out to these borders... A lot of them, no disrespect to them, but a lot of them are probably 
poorly educated or very little education. They're at the lowest of the low rank. They're stuck out there for months at a time in some remote border post. The best, as with any relatively boring job, that the best way to make it go quicker is to kind of do stuff. Yeah. You know, um, you know, entertain yourself for as long as possible yeah. with these poor tourists that have arrived at your border yeah. because it just makes the day go a bit quicker. If you just wave them through, then you're just standing there for another six hours waiting for the next car to arrive. So you might as well have a bit of fun. Now, a lot of people can get quite irate with that. That's true. And think, you know what? I'm not having this. You know, I want to see your superiors. But if you just see it from their point of view, they're stuck out there. You've just got to be very calm, very relaxed. Smile. Absolutely no problem at all. You know, always shades off. Eye contact is so important when you travel. People find it quite not offensive, but it's 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 um you know if there's a barrier, yeah. You know, so just take your shades off. Let this let them see your eyes. Be a bit more vulnerable. Just be totally relaxed. If they tell you to wait, just go and wait. And then eventually they'll just get bored of you because yeah. they, they're not having the fun they thought they were going to have. Sure. And they okay, well we'll let them go and we'll find someone who's going to get a bit more riled up about it, and sure. they'll have a bit of fun. So that, that's kind of one of the key things with borders is just um, just remember the poor soul that's stuck out there yeah, no, and, that's and, that's and just advice. be very, very polite and very respectful to them and just appreciate that they're probably not really enjoying, enjoying that job or the posting they've been given for however many months they're stuck out there. So, yeah. The other thing that came to mind for me around your record trip is, uh, you know, one of them other than the efficiency around borders uh, the second most important thing is to make sure that the vehicle doesn't stop working because mm. that would be a huge delay mm. in your trip. Now, you took uh, a Land Rover Discovery 2, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, with a diesel motor. Yeah. Um, how did you optimize the vehicle for reliability? And then what was your routine around checking the vehicle? Did you do that when you stopped for fuel or how did you do your daily and weekly? Or To be quiet, it wasn't my first choice of vehicle. Mm. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. you had tried to get somebody else. To- it was always going to be Land Rover, you know, proud Brit doing it for to raise money for Help for Heroes, this sort of military charity that supports injured soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan and all the rest of it. So it was always going to be Land Rover. We'd get more sponsorship because we were using a Land Rover product. We'd get more coverage through the Land Rover magazines. And just basically being a good, proud Brit, you want to fly the flag. A Discovery 1 would have been my choice. Land Rover Defenders, when we, um, I did a project where we had to drive all the way to Istanbul, across Turkey to Georgia, up to the highest mountain in Georgia. And oh my God, I'm too tall to sit in a Defender for too long. It was too uncomfortable. So that was never going to happen. Range Rovers were too complex and Freelanders were too small. But I've always felt the Discovery has basically been Land Rover's finest hour. It's an absolute jack of all trades. And when I was training for this Camel Trophy, we had the Discovery 1. I could not believe the places this thing could go. With slightly taller tyres, it was basically keeping up with any Defender. Yes, it's got a bit more of a back end hanging out and you could ground out a touch. But really, there wasn't much in it. Yeah. And the comfort levels. Now, the problem was, although we wanted a Discovery 1 because it's 300 TDI engine, it's all mechanical, much simpler to fix. I'm 6'2", my brother's 6'2", and the other guy driving was a six-footer. We couldn't sleep in the back. It was too short. We tried sleeping across the back seats, and that didn't work. We tried sleeping lengthways. That didn't work. And in fact, the only thing that did work was almost diagonally with your feet behind, because it was a left hooker, behind the co-driver and your head as far away from possible so you you didn't hear the chatter up front in the rear left of the car and the discovery two i think is like seven or nine inches longer it is longer so unfortunately with that came a td5 engine with its ecu so i wasn't happy about that it's a good motor though actually. it's it's a good motor 
A lot of them have got air suspension. Well, we rip that out and put coil springs on. So we, we remove that possible failure point. Uh, a lot of them will have uh, active suspension. So uh, with the hydraulic rams, all that went. And even since I got back, I've even taken the air conditioning off. Anything that, if it failed, could stop that engine. You know, if an air conditioning motor seized, it would throw the belt. The belt could seize something else. So I don't need it. You know, I'll just acclimatize. So yeah, we um, we went for the TD5, um, but we made sure that we had another ECU pre-programmed and we checked it. It was a complete plug and play. Pull it out, put it in. Yeah. Uh, there was no sitting there with diagnostics kit. We did take a diagnostics tool with us. But the, the thing was, every bit of effort was put into the basic mechanics of the vehicle. It was not the accessories that we could bolt onto the outside of it. So there was a particular bolt that hold, held the oil pump on. And there was reports that some models in the factory didn't either weren't talked correctly or didn't have the right thread lock on. And because it was a, we don't know, it's quite a major job, you know, to pull the bottom of the engine off and replace this bolt. But that was done. A new clutch was done. New brakes were done. The suspension was checked. The boring stuff was done. Yeah. New water pumps. We took the fan off, the viscous fan. We stuck an electric one on for fuel saving. That wasn't, it didn't cause us problems, but in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done that because that could have been a failure. But it was all the boring stuff that was focused on. Alloy wheels were removed. Heavy duty steel wheels were put on because as we know, you can just beat them straight with a hammer. Anybody in Af an African village will have a welder. They may not have the welding rods, so you carry them, but who can weld alloy? Yeah. In the summer, no one can weld alloy. You know, if you need to be, you just start jumping batteries together and you can weld you can weld steel. But welding alloy, it's a completely different ball game. So alloy wheels off. We did fit an external roll cage, but that was just for safety. Uh, we did carry two spares. Didn't need any of them. But it was just that kind of stuff that we, we checked. And we took it up to a company in the in the northeast called Alive Tuning, and they tuned it for economy, not for performance. We did fit a long-range fuel tank, but I'm very anything that's permanent, I'm very wary of. Yeah. You puncture a long-range fuel tank, and, and if that's the only source of fuel you've got, and you could drain the lot, you might be able to repair that tank, but you've now got no fuel in it. So we would carry jerry cans of fuel, because one, you've always got that safety, I'm always carrying 20 or 40 litres in a can, and the odds of that getting damaged are pretty minimal. Plus, there may be occasions when I can't get the car near the fuel source. You know, it's abandoned. I need to go and get fuel. What am I going to go and get it in? You know, you can take a jerry can. The same with water tanks. I'm not a big fan either. You know, that's very important in what I call your survival rule of three. Water's number two. Uh, sorry, number three in the list of your survival priorities. Let's so Let's don't carry all your water in a tank because if you split the tank, you've lost the lot. Right. So, so what's number one? Number one is oxygen. Let's Stuff it up. ABCs, yeah. If you get it wrong... And, and this is, this is goes right down to the basics of building a vehicle. So for example, if you decide you've modified the suspension too much, you're carrying too much weight, you're traveling too fast, uh, you're driving at night and you haven't got the right lights. There are a whole load of things that could ultimately end up with you screwing it up and having an accident. And if you get it wrong and stick your head through that windscreen and you have a catastrophic bleed, three minutes, yeah. that's your life expectancy. So you have to then work back all those little decisions you might have made before. You don't want to cause yourself a three-minute failure. Don't pick the wrong brakes. You know, don't do this. Don't do that. Uh, get the right training. You know, so that you don't smack it into a pothole and just rip the front of the car off. So three minutes is oxygen. The next one is shelter, and we're talking more extreme environments. We're not talking, you know, lovely sunny day now or in the deserts. We're talking the cold, but it doesn't have to be that cold. And we're not talking about shelter, tent shelter, which is what most people think. We're talking 
naked body shelter, the clothing that you're wearing. So I'm not a big fan of roof tents because shelter's your number two. So if it's all wrong and you're in a, a cold environment and you don't have any shelters, three hours. So you could be going up to Scotland now. You know, I've been up there in June. So it's what now? 18, 20 degrees? It's yeah, lovely it's here. I could sit here in my underpants and I would survive all night. Go up to Scotland, which is not an extreme place. In the middle of the summer, I've had minus 18 wind chill up there. If I'm up there in a pair of swimming trunks, three hours, I'm going to be a bit of a mess, you know, probably incapable of doing anything. So that's my three-hour rule. So your shelter is number two. So if you've got a roof tent and your car goes up in, a, in flames, which is not uncommon, it's, you can never say no car has ever caught fire in the middle of the desert. And your shelter is going up in smoke. That's your three hours gone. No, that's good. You know, that's good. So you've got to carry, even with a roof tent, you've got to carry something. You've got to have a, a small, cheap, 40 quid millets, you know. So we were just finishing up talking about the, the top three. Yeah. So we've got, yeah. you know, don't make decisions that keep you from doing a fatal injury to yourself or to the people yeah. that you're with. Yeah. Honoring yourself and honoring your travel mates, their safety. Yeah. And then the second one is make sure if you have a breakdown and you're in some place remote that you have a way to stay out of the weather. Absolutely. And you and I have both been in conditions where it would be counted in probably minutes, not even hours. Yeah. You were at minus 60. In Siberia. In Siberia. Yeah. You know, I've been to that area, but not during the winter like you did. And the coldest that I ever experienced was minus 57, which was actually in Canada. But your hands, you know, I, yeah. I, I think um, I, even at minus 40, I went out and did a reconnaissance out there about oh, a couple of years later. And I was wandering around Yakutsk, the world's coldest city. And I was taking, I was doing some video with my, my phone. I didn't realize I could have pressed a button. So I took my glove off to press the one minute, one minute. And my hand is absolutely absolutely useless. So you think like doing up a jacket or opening a car door or getting into a building yep. and you've got dead hands. Yep. One minute is all you've got. It's it's quite scary how quickly it can go so horribly wrong. Yeah, the frostbite so, that I experienced was from that exact same situation. Yeah. I was taking photographs of an aurora in Greenland on the ice sheet, minus 40. Yeah, yeah. A few minutes and I my fingers stopped working. I yeah. even I was so enthralled by the by the image and the view that I saw. That I wasn't, I forgot about myself. Yeah. And the only reason why I knew it was happening is because my fingers stopped moving. It yeah. actually stopped moving. The joint locked up. Yeah. And then I realized I couldn't feel the hand at all. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, terrifying. So that's number two. Then, and then the number three is, is water. The, water. Yeah. the av average person in average conditions can survive three days without water. So three minutes for oxygen, you know, really, that's all you've got. Bad conditions, you know, it could be a lot quicker, shorter, but... On average, three hours. three hours, three days without, the average person go for three days without water, and then three weeks without food. So your last priority, and so a lot of people you'll hear about, you know, crikey, you know, you've got to drive hard through the night, you know, we can't stop here, we've got to get to somewhere to get food, so we're going to risk driving in the dark, wild animals, unlit vehicles, poor lighting on the vehicle, we're tired, you've got shelter, you have a tent, you, have, you could be in the car, you have water. But you're pushing, pushing, pushing to try and get to somewhere before the restaurant closes. Yeah. And all of a sudden, bang, big accident through the windscreen. You're trying to achieve something that you know, if you knew, you could go three weeks without. But now you've just taken it from three weeks to three minutes because you've yeah. cocked up. You know, so as long as you know the order, what's going to kill you first, a lot of it, you can just push right back to the very back and go, Do you know what? I don't even have to worry about that. Yeah. I just got to keep myself safe and my team safe and we've got to keep out the weather. Uh, and definitely with the roof tent thing, you've got to carry another tent. 
and with the water, don't don't have it don't have it in one big tank. Yeah, and I don't carry I don't, some jerry cans. I don't know that that for a lot of it, it depends on what your goals are, but for a lot of people, I don't think the roof tent is the best choice. Um, I think for the weekend travels, or you know, if you're in the in the deserts, they're fine. Yeah. They're fine. But if you're in very technical terrain, or if you're in very extreme weather, they just they just aren't the best choice. Yeah. Well, there's the there's there's the weight factor. Well, yeah. one one a lot of it for me is just the sheer expense of them. You know, you're basically paying a couple of grand for a scout tent from the 1950s. You'd never find one of those tents at Everest Base Camp. You know, it's all high-tech materials now. Um, but there's the weight that, that's up there. Uh, you've got Wind resistance. Yeah, yeah, less fuel range. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how bad would you feel if you conked out of fuel because this thing's now doing 15 to the gallon, not 25 to the gallon, because you've got this brick on the roof. Uh, it won't handle so well. But it's really this, if it all goes wrong, you know, there are a lot of little factors that are just niggly, but it's the all go wrong. And my worry is if a car went up in flames or ended up, you've rolled it, you've got out, but this thing's halfway down a ravine and it's all upside down and, and your your shelter is now underneath so the car. I, I see they get their place, but he, um, I had a chat with Andrew Sampier White for one of his things. And I think he told me he fell out... Um, fell out the tent he slipped coming down the ladder now I don't know whether he knackered his arm or his leg but he was on his own and it was a bit touchy as to whether he could actually then drive himself out of that situation if it'd been a ground tent doesn't matter how doesn't matter how drunk you get you're not gonna you're not gonna fall off it you know well that's why normally I like to just if I if I have my choice I'll just sleep inside the car and then uh, the food thing is an interesting one a few years ago I just as a personal test i just i just decided i wasn't going to eat for seven days and i you know i've got a little bit more calories on my frame than the average human so <laughs> yeah. i mean the fir- the first couple of days you feel like you're going to lose your mind oh god yeah but um that's just you, you just realize that you're you're fine and your body's just screaming at you it's trying to take back control yeah by the day the time you get through the third day then you you're not thinking about it as much yeah and the fourth day you're not thinking about it at all no and the, the other thing weirdly is if um because of knowing the order, water is more important than food. If you say you are in a situation where you've got tons of food, mm. and particularly things like meat products or chocolate products, but you've got no water, don't eat. Yeah, you'd want to be thinking, "Christ, I've got to eat! I'm so bloody starving." But in order to digest that yeah. chocolate or that meat in particular, you your body needs an awful lot of water. So it'll dehydrate you quicker. Yeah, sure. So actually, you've just got to sit there and just look at that food and don't touch it because water, water's more important. You could obviously, if you can extract any juice out of it, that's one thing. But yeah, in a really bad survival situation with loads of food and no water, don't eat it. The next thing I want to talk about is is kind of your, when I talked to you earlier, we discussed the fact that travel, how has travel changed you as a person? Like, what, How has travel influenced your life? To start with, when I went off to Africa, having, you know, had that horrible um, situation in the Air Force where I had that panic attack, it, it was just uh, an escape. And then I, I came back and I, I, I kind of led almost sort of a, I don't know whether it's like an identity crisis or whether I was leading almost like two different lives. Back in the UK, because I wanted to do expeditions and therefore I had to be available at the drop of a hat to go off and do stuff. And when I was working with Serrano Fines, there was a big plan to go London to New York via the Bering Straits to celebrate Land Rover's 50th anniversary. 
And I got, out of however many applied for it, there were a lot. I, I, I was the guy who got selected for that team. So we spent three months on the Alaskan side with these tracked amphibious Land Rover defenders working out how to get across the, the sea ice from Russia to Alaska. In order to be able to do that, and most of them were unpaid, you couldn't accept a normal job in the UK because you had to be available at any moment to go, right, I'm out of here. I ended up kind of sleeping on mates' floors or lodging with them or and just taking... I, I was an off-road driving instructor. I was a rally driving instructor. I used to drive a truck for one of the Formula One race teams. But very bitsy work, which didn't really make me feel particularly good about myself because it was relatively low paid. It wasn't, you know, and, and particularly with the guys I went through training with. So two in particular went Harriers, you know, the vertical jump jet aircraft. One of them then became a pilot in the Red Arrows. One of them now is second in command of the entire Royal Air Force. He probably will be and I'll almost put money on it. He will be chief of the air staff. He will be the boss of the air force in about three years time. Absolute brilliant guy. So when you hear about the life that you should have led or you wanted to lead and you're, you know, driving a truck or no disrespect to truck drivers, you know, any, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody, but I felt I should have been doing something different and I wasn't and I couldn't. And I just felt that my life was kind of going downhill, but it was, it was expeditions. It was getting on those expeditions, getting in the team and the more challenging the expedition, it was kind of proving to myself and proving to, to others that I wasn't, I kind of felt like I was a nutter. You know, I had this mental health problem, you know, I had this panic attack. So I, I felt uh, very inferior uh, to, to, to other people, to other blokes in particular, and very embarrassed about the whole situation. And so I was leading kind of two lives. My life in the UK was one of kind of loneliness and depression and not being able to cope and not, I didn't want to hear about what, and I used to shut, my, shut myself away. So it was definitely a form of kind of PTSD where you kind of withdraw into yourself. You don't really want to talk to people about it because it's just too yeah. embarrassing. You know, oh, I had a mental health problem, you know, because then it manifested itself into other problems. So, and I probably haven't divulged this to anybody, only probably Lisa knows about it. So, you know, I used to have problems going on the underground, going into, uh, on a, on a, in a lift. Um, even, uh, certainly a big problem was driving uh, the, the race truck through a tunnel, a long, long tunnel. It's called the, the Fraser's Tunnel between France and Italy. It's like 16 kilometers long or something. It was like being in that plane. And if I had a panic and had to just stop at any point in that tunnel to get out and have a, I'd block the whole tunnel and then the yeah. emergency services would turn up. So I used yeah. to get really, really anxious about going in this tunnel. And, I, and then it started to get to the point where you go on a contraflow. So there's roadworks on the motorway and they force you onto the opposite carriageway, but you're running between two lines of cones. There's nowhere to pull over. So if you can't make the three, four, five miles to the other side, when you can get over and pull over on the hard shoulder, you just block. Yeah the entire motorway. So I used to get really anxious about that. My life in the UK was going the wrong way. It was, it was spiraling down. Now, um, I used to lodge with a mate up in Surrey and then I ended up living in a caravan. I then ended up living Nothing in a- wrong with that. People pay to do that. They now. do, they do. <laughs> I ended up living in a garage roof yeah. with a little camping stove in the corner. Now, I was never a, a hobo on the streets, but I could see how easily it is to get there. Yeah. You know, really easily. So expeditions, when I did get on a project with Sir Reynolds Fines, because if, you would, if you're working with Reynolds Fines, you know it's going to be tough. It's going to be challenging. It's not a holiday. This is a proper, it's never been done before, or if it has been done, we're going to do it quicker, faster, better, or whatever, or tougher. So when you get onto that, then I felt alive again. And so expeditions, it wasn't a question of making me 
feel alive, as in I just felt good about life, I think it was actually keeping me alive. Because I ended up starting, I think I knew when I started to really have problems, when I used to have to start drinking before I went to bed. So uh, I had a bottle of scotch, a bottle of whiskey next to me, and I used to have to have a glass of, because my brain would not switch off. And it didn't matter what I tried to do, I just didn't seem to be able to break out of the situation I was in. I never seemed to be able to, where do you ever find a job advertising expedition person? <laughs> you, exactly. you, just, you just don't. You don't, you know. And I didn't want to be a plumber or an electrician or a driver. I wanted to be a, uh, an explorer, an adventurer, but I wanted to do it with vehicles. But you don't find those jobs. No. So you can't go to the careers office and go, oh, you know, can I look at all the jobs, please, to be. And so you just had to somehow have this self-belief that it was going to get better. But mm. the longer it went on and wasn't getting better and you weren't finding those jobs, the more depressed you got. Yeah, and sure. so when opportunities did come and you're in those situations working with the best people ever, you're in that team, you're tightly knit, it's a remote part of the world. You're meeting the most incredible people who are so friendly. And the more remote you go, the more friendly and hospitable they are. No doubt. The yeah. more wonderful stories they have, the, the culture, the food, the things they drink, the way they live. I'm fascinated by it all. I love it. And so each time I could store that in the back of my head. So when I came home and I'm back in my garage roof and I'm shutting myself away from all my mates that are pilots and executives and directors of companies and nice big houses and fancy holidays and BMWs. And there I am with squat, you know, I could just hang on to that thinking it will work out yeah. eventually. And then I got together with Elisa and she probably doesn't get anywhere near the credit she should for basically she kind of saved me really. She, yeah. she, I don't know why she thought, she obviously saw some potential that I couldn't see or she was just desperate. I think it was probably the latter. It was once there was some stability with her, things started to pick up. And then I got out of the blue, I got this asked to do this um, Everest, this big medical research expedition on Everest. So I go off and see these doctors. Now we're talking the best of the best, you know, medical science in the UK. And there they are, they're going to try and do the largest ever medical research expedition on Everest. It's a three-month project. It's huge. BBC are going to be there, two one-hour documentaries, primetime television. We've got uh, Sherpa Tenzing's son is part of the team. We've got the IMAX um, film crew are there filming him, but filming us. And I turned up to, to, to meet the expedition leader and I thought, what can I bring to, you know, these guys are superheroes. These doctors, anything they could do, you know, far goes beyond anything I can do didn't take me too long to realize that actually, as brilliant as they are in their medical profession, when it comes to expedition logistics and planning, no disrespect to them, but my God, they haven't got a clue. And so I could actually contribute something to it. And actually, I managed to contribute a heck of a lot to it. And so it would be like that was you or I needing to remove a gallbladder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to cut. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? So we all have our strengths. Yeah. And so I really found a place and then and then it and then it just started to build yeah. and you know the the garage roof i lived in was half a mile down the road i live in a four bedroom house yeah. with an acre of land we got horses and you know beautiful countryside it's, it's a totally desirable yeah so you can you can always lisa was the key then yeah yeah <laughs> and you, you can always imagine that life can spiral that way incredibly quickly you yeah. can always imagine if it all goes wrong if you lose your job you get divorced you know whatever you can always think crikey i can see how it goes that way so quickly but you can never really imagine how it can go that way so equally as quickly and that's what happened for me I don't know how the heck it happened, uh, but well, it's persistence for sure. Still, yeah, still, still I, I think I think I had to, I had to I had to stick with the dream. I had to because that was the only thing that was going to replace the thrill and the excitement of being a fast jet pilot. And it and it wasn't just the flying; it was the people you were with, 
It was the confidence that it gave me, the self-respect, the self-esteem. I could hold my head up in society and fun- amongst everybody. And when all that fell apart, I didn't just lose a flying career. I lost my best mates, you know, as you know, as an ex-military person. They're more than just mates. They're, they're real brothers, aren't they? You know, you do anything for them because you, you've, you've been through it all, probably a lot more than your own, your own flesh and blood, you know. Uh, a lot of times. Uh, yeah. And so you lose that. You lose your self-respect, your confidence. So that's why I kind of lost everything and it all went wrong. And so it was the expeditions. It was being back amongst those like-minded people that just kept me going the right way. And so anyway, so Lisa said, for God's sake, shut up and just go into London to Cape Town. And I did. Came back to the UK. I got a call. I kid you not. It was something like five days. Somebody had read about it or heard about it or something. They were putting together an extreme driving series for Discovery Channel being paid for by Shell to promote the the Shell Helix engine oil. And they needed somebody to plan it, deliver it, lead it, everything. And they'd obviously looked at the website and thought, crikey, he's done the the Alaska thing with Ranulph Fiennes. He was his right-hand man on his last North Pole expedition. If he's good enough for Sir Ranulph Fiennes, he's good enough for us. And I just got, Mac, here's the job. It was a six-word brief. It was originally hottest, coldest, highest, Russia, China, India. That was it. Make it happen. And that, that was it. There was no interview. It was six words. Make it happen. And so the highest, actually, I did the recce for it. Uh, the Indians like to say it's the highest road in the world. It's not. Kardangla, but they like to say it is. Um, what is? It is. Ooh, now you're asking. There, well, you've got Oyo del Salado. All the world altitude records have been held on Oyo del Salado. So there is a track that goes to 5,800 meters. Kardangla is about five six. You're talking uh, about the one in Chile. Yeah, where the world altitude record is. There's another one. I don't think it's on Aconcagua. There's another mountain. There's a. There, there was. They were mining at something like six thousand meters, yeah. driving these trucks up there. But I've been. I've taken classic cars over uh, over passes in, the, in Tibet. They were five six. Yeah. So definitely higher than Kardanglar in the Indian Himalayas. But yeah, so I was given this six-word brief, make it happen. And it was, a, it was still to this date the most expensive advertiser-funded program produced in the United Kingdom. I think it was like five million or something. So we took the Hollywood actor Tom Hardy, who plays Mad Max. He was the baddie in the Batman film, Bane with the mask. We took him to Siberia. And with- it seems like he's, he's a bit of an adventurer in oh, yeah, yeah. right. It's yeah. surprising the Tough number, the number of, of actors that, that love what we love mm. you know you know i mean obviously you know the long way around with ewan mcgregor and all that comes to mind yeah yeah yeah. tom hanks comes to mind yeah. he, he's got a synchro volkswagen synchro oh, good man he's done a bunch of overlanding with that i yeah. mean there's i mean it's surprising the number of of actors that yeah that, and it makes sense it's a way for them to escape yeah from what is has got to be a very intense life. Well, that was, that was the other thing. So one, you know, you've got you've got Tom Hardy there. He just earned what did he tell us he earned? It was something ridiculous, like sixteen million dollars as as for, for being the baddie in the Batman film. Uh, and then we got Mikasalo, an ex Ferrari F1 racer there. That was Siberia. And then we took Henry Cavill, who plays Superman, yeah. and Neil Hodgson, former World Superbike champion, to the desert of Western China. So we've gone from minus sixty to plus fifty. And then Adrian Brody, the youngest Oscar winner, what a cool bloke he is, you know. So we took him to the Malaysian jungle and Mika Salo enjoyed Siberia so much, he came and did that one with us. Absolutely brilliant guys. But so there, you know, there we are. So Tom Hardy's, um, you've, you've been to Yakutsk, so we're in the uh, Polar Hotel or whatever it's called yeah. in Yakutsk, yeah, probably everyone who goes to. And so we're sitting there, everyone looks the same. And I made it very clear. I don't care how much you earned for your last film. If it all goes wrong, you ain't getting out of this situation any quicker than the rest of us. We're all in it together. We all look after each other. There's no, 
I'm worth this amount of money. I'll sit in the car when it's warm. You guys are outside fixing problems or dealing with stuff. We all look after each other. We buddy buddy all the time. And they just got it just, you know, straight away. You know, I didn't. They were probably relieved to be just a part of the team. Yep. And basically what goes on tour stays on tour, you know, so you you could be very open about stuff. You could chat about stuff. um, And they just knew it just wasn't going to go any further. The press were never going to hear about it. So any, any of the funny things that we got up to, it was just going to be whatever was going to show on camera. And it, it meant they could really relax, get away from it all. And I think this is why Prince Harry probably got on very well in the military. Same sort of approach. The life he's leading at the moment, I'm sure, isn't doing him any favours. He yeah. probably needs to get away and do a few more expedition-y type things with like-minded people. Yeah, I, he seemed I, I pretty think, happy when I saw him in Antarctica. Yeah. He was doing hard things. Yeah, it's more than just... Uh, it's more than just travel. It's, uh, it, I, I did have a, a proper saying for it. I can't what it is now. But it certainly, it's, it certainly has, has, has kept me on the straight and narrow. You know, it, it fires me up. Uh, and I think the, the main thing is the people that you're doing it with, you know, because you've got those shared stories. But, but yeah. isn't that so much, you know, it, you know, an anecdote for life is that we think that our status will make us happy. It can't because no. status can be removed so quickly. Yeah. We think that uh, money can make us happy, but we can lose money. Mm-hmm. And and statistically, after you make about seventy, eighty thousand dollars, you don't get any happier. So maybe fifty, sixty thousand pounds, you're not any happier than you are. You know, if you're making two million pounds. Yeah. In fact, a lot of times people are less happy. Yeah. At the end of the day, it is about the experiences that we have, and that was what you were searching for. You mm. were searching for connection with the people that you traveled with going on that Everest expedition you met your partner yeah you now have a daughter with her these are things that are far beyond any amount of money or any amount of stuff yeah yeah and those are the things that bring you the most joy yeah doing hard things in hard places with with people that you want to be there with yeah and having memories and experiences yeah. from that and I think so I think that that's an anecdote for life I yeah. think that we're supposed to do hard things we're supposed to do it with people yeah and I, I think the other thing is I, I've just quite stubbornly you know I, I, cu- I could have bailed and I probably got quite well, did I ever get quite close to it part of me was telling me that I, I needed to give up I needed to go and get a proper job you yeah. know and, and there was another big part of me probably bigger because I'm still doing what I love was I, I was never going to be happy doing that. This makes me, you know, incredibly happy. A good mate of mine that I went to school with, all he ever wanted to do when we were kids was be an ornithologist. He wanted to work for the, the Natural History Museum, bird preservation. He wanted to travel the world, you know, study bird species, protect bird species, educate people, you know, inspire children to look after the environment. That was his absolute living, breathing passion. So we finished uh, A-levels, which is, you know, about 18 years of age. He wanted to go to university, but his parents, who were, you know, they were they lived in the bigger detached house. Dad had his own private practice. So, you know, financially, they were much more able to support him through uni than, say, my family were, because, you know, people, kids didn't really go to uni when I was, you know, that often when I was a kid. His parents looked at him, ornithology, well, that's not a real job, but not support him. And they gave him three weeks after having done A-levels to go and get a proper job. So there were lots of insurance companies near where we lived in Surrey. And so we just went to get a job with them, processing motor claims, you know. Oh, I've crashed my car, you know, send me the paperwork and I'll fill it in. And, you know, he's still there. You know, he's a broken man, an absolute broken man. Because of the, the relatively unsupportive environment he lived within at home, 
he had to get his own place and now he's got a mortgage. So he has to stick with the job yeah, to pay the mortgage. Done. And that's it. And you look at him yeah. and I used to actually look up to him. I used to lodge with him for a couple of years. And, you know, he, yes, he had the nice house. He had the BMW on the drive. He used to go on holiday. He still did his bird watching and stuff. And, you know, he'd run around the countryside and spend weekends doing stuff and go off on holidays to different parts of the world with mates doing bird watching. And I used to be quite envious thinking, oh, crikey, I've, you know, I'm getting on for 40 and I've really cocked this up. Haven't I? I'm sleeping on mates' floors. I've got nowhere to live and still haven't got a proper job. And then somehow, because of my persistent self-belief, dogged determination to make it work, I've kind of been rewarded for it. He had the proper job. He did the sensible thing. And he's actually not been punished for it, but he doesn't live in a very nice area. It's all gone a bit wrong for him. Yeah. I've been blessed with a, living in a wonderful part of the world, which most people, you know, people come on holiday to this part of the world, you know, so do I feel... I think staying, staying true to our... True to our yeah, I, I, th- I think because if, if, if you don't have any passion and, and enthusiasm for whatever it is that you want to do in life, you're not really going to, you're not going to excel in other, other areas because, you know, he never wanted to be an insurance guy. So of course he's never going to get picked up to become a manager or a director or anything. So he's just sit at the bottom, you know, processing his motor claims. I, I've wanted to always do this kind of adventurous stuff. And it's, it just fires me up. It makes me come alive. You know, every time I get the call, you know, can you plan this for us? Can you, sure. you know, create that? Can you design something? Can you, you know, put something together? I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Absolutely loving it. It's not a job. It's, a, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's kind a, of amazing at times. Yeah. Paid to do what we do. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what advice would you give to someone that's just getting started? with overland travel what pieces of wisdom which kind of your elevator pitch that you would give to someone that was getting ready to do a big trip my my elevator pitch is spend the least amount of money you can on the vehicle and just go and do it you know any vehicle will take you around the world we've all heard of the mongol rally you know a nissan micra you could pick one up for 500 quid what's that 600 700 dollars yeah little one liter engine you can fix it yourself. You'll learn so much. Just get on the road and go. Worry about the, the, the big fancy 4x4s and the roof tents and the special suspension and the long-range fuel tanks and all the trimmings that you can see in the magazines. Worry about that later. Just get something and get out there. And see if you even like it. Yeah. yeah just start off with yeah. building some experience. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I said to Benji Davenport. He came to the, the Royal Geographical Society. I think it was like three years on the trot, wanting to ask very specific questions about particular components of the vehicle very detailed stuff. And I looked at him at the end of the third year and I said, Benji, I do not want to see you here next year. You know, a postcard from someone yeah, that's interesting. You know everything. That vehicle is good to go. You know, you could take that out of the out of the factory, ready to go. It'll take right. you around the world. Just right. go do it. And then he did. That's and he's right. he's thanked me for it. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll just have a blast. You'll meet the most amazing people and you'll learn so much about yourself and others and cultures and it's just the best life on the road. So when we the driven to extreme series, so we airlifted the cars to the start point to the coldest city. So that was quite expensive, chartering a Boeing 757, as you can imagine, got them to the coldest city. We're about there, me and the mechanic, uh, Paul, we're about there a week before the film crew and Tom Hardy and Mikasalo came out. So you had to drive the Aldan and frozen. So yeah, so we drove, we drove out to uh, Omicron and back, that was about 10 days, and then they went home. So the next film is to be run in Western China. So the the best way was for me and, and the mechanic to drive our Nissan patrols from far eastern Siberia all the way down to the bottom of Lake Baikal, all the way across Mongolia, all the way across China, sure. getting ready for Henry Cavill and Neil Hodgson for the next one. And then once they'd done that, we drove to Singapore. I'm being paid for this. But the best thing was with overland travel is 
If you do regular travel, I've never been, I've, I've done two holidays in my life and they were both skiing trips. And that's all I've ever done since the day I was born. Because as a kid, we'd come down to the West Country to the cottage and I'd run riot all around the, uh, the fields and the woodlands around here. So I've never looked in a brochure and, and paid to go on a holiday apart from two skiing trips. That's all I've done in more, than, more years than I care to remember of my age. But I guess with regular holidays, you will look in a brochure and you'll have preconceived ideas. Oh, Taj Mahal, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be this, that and the other. And if you rock up and you go, oh, actually, it's not quite as good as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be, you know, grander and this and the food was going to be better and the view and it wouldn't be, you know, 10,000 people here, you know. With overlanding, if you just have a start point and a finish point and you don't really know what's in the middle, you are going to come across the most amazing things and meet the most amazing people. They're not going to appear in any travel brochure. You're not going to know about it. You're just going to stumble across it. And those memories will last a lifetime. Well, that's what you did for me today. You were sending me all of these little spots to yeah. to visit between where I left north of London. and Yeah. It was magic. It yeah. Was magic. And so when we, when we relocated from Far East and Siberia, we're heading down towards Lake Baikal. We've got our guide with us, Slava. We just round a hill and we go across a bridge and then we look to the left and there's like a thousand people out on this frozen river. And I said to Slava, well, what's, what's going on there? No idea, he said. So we turned around and it was the annual reindeer festival. And we didn't know. We just happened to be there on the right day. And that's it, you know. We'll park the vehicle up, let's go and have a look. And it was incredible. And even even basic things like when you do a lot of traveling, you don't want to have too much of a heavy lunch, yeah. but certainly if you've got to drive in the afternoon. So you can imagine, you know, particularly in the UK, you know, a Sunday roast is quite a traditional thing. Family comes together, big Sunday roast, all the men of the family come three o'clock. They're all flat out on the sofa, snoring away like mad. Because what happens is uh, your body drains blood into your stomach to digest all that food. So after having had a very heavy meal, you become very tired. And so it's quite dangerous driving to have a heavy lunch. So you want a really light lunch, save your heavy evening meal for later. So, yeah, once you're done driving. So it was only a little bowl of soup and some bread. And so we're just stopping at these truckers' calves. They wouldn't appear in any brochure, you know, just really rough truckers' calves. And we're having this salianka soup with 14 different types of meat and an olive and a slice of lemon and a little bit of, oh my God. So good. It was to die for. It was absolutely. And it was just really, really cheap unpretentious basic food and it was just well, wonderful you think, if you think about it the, the the truckers are that's they're professional and they're gonna they're not gonna stop at the places that isn't good they do this trip yeah all the time so yeah where you see the trucks parked it's usually pretty good food. yeah and it's it's little stuff like that of that course. i still remember and that's yeah. from 2012 and it's still a hugely fond memory in the back of my head yeah, because I re- then remember being i was in the walk-on corridor of afghanistan and, and tajikistan and we stopped at this little village and i had this rice pilaf that and it had goat or sheep or something and it was just it was so delicious mm. it was the only thing that they had there was no menu mm. you sat down and that's what they served you because that's what they made that day. yeah and it was one of the best meals i've ever had in my life and and i think a lot of it was because of what we talked about before which was i was doing something difficult i was doing something that i was passionate about i was with someone that i cared about my good friend charlie and i think that that's why that meal is so memorable yeah, yeah. but all of it came together in that moment yeah and th- and this is I think overlanding is the 
only experience that can give you that. As soon as you start jumping on a plane from one international airport to another, you know, you could land in anyone. If you, you know, went in blindfolded and you didn't see the signs up of where you'd landed, you could, you could be anywhere. They all look the same. They all taste the same. Yeah. It's all the interesting stuff that you'd have missed in the middle. Jump on two wheels or get inside four wheels and just go and find it. And it's, it's, I cannot recommend it enough. In fact, my game plan, when eventually Lisa's had enough of me and kicks me out, I'm just going to get a truck and head east. Just start going. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mac, thank you so much for your time. No, my pleasure. I, I have been a long admirer of the work that you do. You've given back so much to the community. Uh, the expeditions that you've conducted are some of the most notable in the history of overlanding. And it's just a very rare joy to sit down and spend time with someone of your professionalism and caliber. So, Mac, thank you so much for not only doing the interview with me, but letting me stay here at your beautiful no, home. No, absolutely. My pleasure. Your beautiful home. And Anytime. Cider. No, much, much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Thank yep. you. And we thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.